I don't lead the church, I don't lead other Christians. And that is nowhere in the New Testament. People are called together to follow Jesus together, and being together is where, uh, if you uh, hear this verse sometimes uh, in church services, uh, when Jesus said, when two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. There's this mystical way that when believers gather together, Jesus is present. And that's what church is. It's not something you go to once a week, like you go to the grocery store to check the box. Um, it's God's people together. Yeah. yeah, and this goes back to the question, what, what would you say to somebody who said, why do I have to go to church? Well, if you read the Bible, and which can be a daunting thing, but like once you realize the overall story of what the Bible says, it's there from beginning to end. It's I can sum it up really simply. It's God creating a holy people to live with him. That's with Adam and Eve going all the way through Israel and then ultimately even in the New Testament, those who are united to Christ. And what's amazing is that um, you know the, the church is really like the temple. These people have become the temple of God, that the spirit of God where uh, comes and dwells inside Christians. It's a radical thing because the Old Testament, that wasn't the case. God dwelled in a specific place in the temple, but now uh, what Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of people, to have God come and be a part of your life. And then what, so he does work individually in people's lives, but then he, I think, um, takes individuals who are, have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them brings them, they're, they're kind of like spurred on to meet together by God's indwelling them. Yeah. And in, in a way, if you're truly a Christian, if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, there's an irresistibility to gathering together. Which, you know, if people are like, why do I have to go to church? I would want to basically say, let's reframe this all together because if you have God's Spirit in you, there's going to be something in you that wants to do it no matter what. And I talked uh, before about it the bond that you can have with people who have nothing like you don't speak the same language, you're not the same gender, you're not the same age, but you are a Christian who has the same spirit inside of you. And all of a sudden, the deepest bond is created. Yeah, and I think one of the fundamental misconceptions that goes with this is, going back to Lewis again, when he was an atheist, he said his idea of God was that he was a kind of a mean, old, bearded guy that lived up in the sky who was looking around for people who were having fun and sneaking up on them and yelling, stop it! Um, and that, that, was, that was kind of what it was about. But in fact, Lewis, when he got further in his Christian life, one of his most famous quotations is, the serious business of heaven is joy. And joy is what should happen when Christians are together. There's a great book that I couldn't find on my shelf that's called The Kingdom of God is a Party, which is not usually the way we think about things. You know, most people think, oh, go to church, mm, get a root canal. You know, it's not, not something that you look forward to and think this is going to be a joyous time. And sometimes that's the church's fault. Sometimes you can go to a church, um, and I think I've said this before, in our Anglican liturgy, um, there are these things called versicles and responses. Don't worry if you know, don't know what that is. But it's sort of a call and response that happens in the liturgy. And one of them, the answer is supposed to be, and make thy chosen people joyful. And I can't tell you how many times I've been to church services, and you get to that part, and it's, and make thy chosen people joyful. You know, and 
it just like totally misses the point. Um, when you read in the New Testament and you look at the church together, you look at Jesus with his disciples, they love being together. There's joy, there's purpose, there's meaning, and there's real friendship and fellowship in the midst of that. This is why you and I really love uh, Tolkien and, and Lewis, and particularly their stories. I mean, these guys, they what made them, I think, so appealing to so many people and a way into the Christian faith was that they expanded the imagination of what does it mean to be uh, a Christian. And it, it's an adventure. It's something that's a journey. It's exciting. People's understanding, I mean, if, if even they're asking the question, why should I go to church, their vision of God is, is probably way too small. Their vision of Christianity is far too sad. Yeah. It's just far too sad because, uh, in, a, in a way, going to church is like going to the outpost on the adventure. And you've been out in the wild all week, and you're being refreshed yes. together. And you go back out into the, the battle or the journey of the adventure. And that's what all the great fiction stories get at. Yeah, uh, so. yeah. yeah one of the... Um, things Justin and I were talking about when we were having lunch um, the other day was that so often I think we, if, if you've grown up in the South and you sort of went to church before anyone explained to you what you were doing, you just kind of go and you don't really know why you're going and you maybe don't understand what's happening in the church service. And it reminded me of this analogy that I read about, most of y'all know Justin is a really great golfer. Um, if you want to know more about that, tell me. He's too modest to tell you, but um, I'll tell you all about it. But uh, when he goes and plays golf on a really difficult course, he is overjoyed with that. It is an amazing experience for him. But just imagine if you had never played golf in your life, you'd never watched the Masters on TV, you'd never seen anything, and somebody invited you to go play a really difficult golf course. You didn't even know what golf clubs were. And somebody hands you this bag that has all these weird-looking poles in it with different things on the end of them and tells you you're supposed to hit this little ball in the hole you can't even see. Does that sound like fun? Not so much. And part of it with church is that we, have, we don't prepare ourselves. We haven't understood what the context is. We haven't learned what the tools are. We don't know what we're doing. Um, when we go, and so then it sometimes seems like it's just a different language and it doesn't relate to us. And I think we have to take, uh, and you agree, the large responsibility on us as leaders in the church, that's largely on us and yeah. not teaching and helping people to understand. It's been, um, I mean, I grew up and I couldn't stand, I couldn't understand what the preacher was even saying, uh, much less all these ancient words and the liturgy that we said every time. So for me, church changed when I went to a different expression of the faith. It was a different tradition than Anglican. And, um, it was, these people really meant it. And that, right. that changed for me. I was like, wow, these, okay, this is real for them. Yeah. Um, and I kind of made my way back into the Anglican world realizing that you can make these repeated things that we say week in, week out, you can still mean them and, it, and they're, they're beautiful. Words. Yeah, and they can be full of life. And one of the things that... Um, I think is true is that when you're in worship, we live in such a profoundly self-centered culture um, that we think everything is all about us. I mean, I'm not exempt from that. Neither is Justin. Um, but in worship, the whole idea, the root word of that is we are focused off of ourselves and focused on God and talking about God's worth 
and God's kingdom, and that his kingdom is what's more real even than this world that we live in right now. And when you begin to touch that reality, uh, there's joy in that. One of my most interesting conversations this past year before the pandemic, there was a guy who had moved here from New York, like many people are doing. Um, he was a young guy in his 20s, uh, very successful, bought a big house on Queen Street in his 20s, and he was a committed atheist. Um, he had gone to a church school until he was 12. He hated it. He was really smart. He majored in philosophy. He was an atheist, but somebody kept pestering him about coming to church with them at St. Philip's. And finally, just to get the guy off his back, he said, okay, I'll go with you one time. And he went, and he wasn't necessarily blown away by the sermon or anything, but there was something about the singing and the presence of something he couldn't put his finger on where he felt that there was something that was real with a capital R that he didn't have an explanation for. So I got a voicemail the next day from him, basically saying, I'm an atheist, I'm still an atheist, but something happened in that church service that I don't have a vocabulary to understand, and I would like to come talk to you about that. So um, there, there are, which we did, there's a whole rest of that story, but um, the point is there's something real that happens when the Holy Spirit is present in worship, and that's something that if you're a Christian, you desperately need um, in your life. It's kind of amazing when you think about it. Like um, what we say we believe happening on a Sunday is that God is coming and God Himself is coming into our midst. Which, of course, uh, you know, he, He's with us wherever we go. Which will be a question in a second. But to, pro- to proclaim that we believe God is coming specifically every time we gather to hear His word and to respond to Him, uh, that He promises to be there. Uh, that's should shock us, actually, yeah. and slightly terrify us at times, too. But um, the, the question I wanted to ask you uh, is, okay, so obviously the whole golf analogy, like, that would be cruel. How could we uh, help people learn to play the game, so, so to speak? How, what would you say is actually happening, and how can you help people um, on a Sunday to hopefully make it more engaging and, and less boring? Like, first of all, what is it that we're doing? And yeah, that makes sense. yeah, that's that's a great question. Actually, several questions, but that is a lot uh, of questions. I think one of, one of the things that's important um, that I think most of us don't do very well. I know, um, particularly before I was in the clergy, I didn't do this hardly ever. Um, I've gotten a little bit better since being in the clergy, but part of it is preparing for worship. You know, one of the things that's really important to do. I'm a big believer. If you don't expect anything to happen, nothing happens. Um, but if you are expectant and looking for what might be going to happen, that makes a really big difference. And it used to be that the invariable custom in our tradition, which is something that unfortunately we're losing, is that, and you've probably seen this and never known why people did it, that you would come into the church before the service. It was pretty quiet. The music, if it's playing, is quiet. And people would come into the pew, and then they would kneel for a while with their eyes closed. And what they were doing is praying that God would open their heart, that they would be expectant for what God might want to speak to them, that they would hear the word of God as a lively thing, and that their heart would be opened to the work of the Holy Spirit. That kind of preparation can make all the difference in a church service. 
Another thing that can make a difference is to look at the scriptures beforehand that are going to be preached on. Another thing that can make a difference is if you go to St. Philip's or really anywhere um, that has sort of formal worship, is to look at the service and read through it and think about what's going on. Or even if you really want to go deep with that, call Justin or me and say, I don't understand what's going on in this service. Would you kind of walk me through this? Because it's not an accident that this form of worship has been around um, for more than 500 years and has roots even deeper than that. It's got staying power because there's something real with a capital R and true with a capital T and beautiful with a capital B that's in that. Yeah, I think, and I would be sympathetic to those who maybe have never set foot in a church before. You're like, okay, well, what, what are you actually doing? Well, we, we believe that we're here. We believe God has spoken, which is an outrageous claim, but we believe he's spoken through human beings, just the way he's intended, and that's been recorded in the Bible, which we'll talk about next time. Um, and we gather as his people to hear what he said and to respond in, in gratitude. I love the way the um, Book of Common Prayer, which is uh, the service book that we use in the Anglican tradition, it says this at the start of morning prayer, which I think is just helpful getting your mind right on what, what yeah. it is we're doing. Framework. We've come together in the presence of God, our Heavenly Father, to give thanks to set forth his praise, to hear his word, and to ask for ourselves on behalf of others, what, those things that are necessary for our life. So fundamentally, it's hearing from God and responding, both in prayer and singing and praising, whether it's song or um, spoken otherwise, and um, and the other, what was it there? Um, that's it, yeah, so those things. Um, and, and the sacraments, too. I mean, that's one of the things. The whole point of church, this is, a lot, of, a lot of times the whole mentality people have is this is what we're doing for God. But if you break down the whole service, it's God feeding, feeding his us. people. It's God coming in and basically building us up. So the direction is more about what God's coming to do for us through his spoken word and then through the, the sacraments of the ordinances where he gives us his word in tangible expression. It's the, the physical sign of his promises to yeah. us. And so we're just basically overjoyed, ideally, in responding back to that. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other aspect of this is that if you're not sure who Jesus is, you don't know who Jesus is, um, you're not convinced one way or the other about Jesus, I would really encourage you to lean into that question and look at the evidence and talk to some people about that because if you are um, going to worship someone who you're not sure is real, um, obviously that's not going to really work out very well. So that's that's an important question, but that can also be part of that preparatory prayer I was talking about. You know, you can say, just be honest, Jesus, if you are real, show yourself. We should probably go on to the question, as again, we've always uh, forgotten what time it is. But before I forget... Um, the, the folks at Henry's are doing us a fantabulous, fantabulous favor, uh, fantastic favor by letting us use this room for free. So please do utilize their services, tip well. Clark is awesome. He is actually not even, they're so understaffed here that they are breaking their backs to, to help us to do this. So we hope to continue to be able to use this in the future, and we want to bless them while we're here. Yes. So uh, drink up and well, but do we have any questions, uh, Colton? If not, I've got some more for Brian that I could ask. Hello? We do? Hi, we do, yeah. 
So the first question is, um, can't church happen anywhere two or more gathered in his name? What makes a church building better than this? Yeah, that is a really great question. I would say yes and no. Um, I would say in some ways, whenever God's people are gathered, um, even if it's two or three, that that is church um, in one sense because it's God's people together. But I think that what we're talking about with church, um, a better a better word might be um, gathering for worship. I think a lot of times when we are um, gathered in small groups of Christians uh, that we are focused uh, on ourselves sometimes and our own needs, which is important and appropriate, but that's to be in balance with focusing on God and worshiping Him. And um, this is a wonderful gathering where we're gathered in Jesus' name but open to people um, from whatever belief system, but we're not worshiping God in this time. And so it's it's profoundly different. And one of the things you'll notice, um, and this is one of the reasons that I think um, the modern church has gotten confused a little bit, old architecture of churches, the building is designed to help you focus and worship. Like when you walk into St. Philip's or any of these old churches in Charleston, you look in and you are immediately drawn to the altar, to the cross, and to the pulpit where the word of God is preached. And those kinds of things, there's not a cross, there's not an altar, there's not a pulpit in here. Yeah, we, we can have fellowship in here, but it's not, not the same as worshiping God, which is um, one of our chief uh, privileges as Christians. So what would you say? Yeah, there's that? so much to, to say there. I, I would definitely, you know, the, the church doesn't stop being the church Monday through Saturday. So the church being the people of God, we are to uh, serve one another in the church, we're to be a witness to the world, but as you said, it's on Sundays in particular, we're gathering for worship uh, specifically, and you know, I, I, I agree, I think, you know, there's something important, God sees all space as sacred, and he's there uh, and you just said it so well, I think what, in some church buildings, it's more of, these are great assist, assistants, like uh, the way the church is designed yeah, pointers. facilitate yeah. and help um have the sense of the transcendent in, in many ways. And so um, another thing I would say is what we're doing right now is, uh, you know, I'm not opening up the Bible and reading God's infallible word here at Theology on Tap. You and I are fallible people, and we make mistakes all the time. And so you, although you may encounter God here tonight, you cannot, and we, hope you do. and we hope you do, it's not in the same way that you can bank on when you hear his word read in a gathering of his people and then uh, a response to that. That's what is so central in the service. Yeah. And part of what we're responding to in worship, when we gather in worship, is the holiness of God, which is something that we so often lose sight of in our culture. And the holiness of God, when you read in the scriptures, is one of God's chief attributes that it, um, reminds me, again, I always go to these Lewis analogies, but if you read in the Chronicles of Narnia, um, early on, the children are in Narnia, and they're first learning about Aslan, the great lion who's like Jesus, um, at the beaver's house. And they um, ask, uh, the, the children ask the beavers, is he, is he safe? Is he a tame lion? And the beavers just laugh and say, 
No, he's not tame. He's wild, but he is good. And I think, you know, there's that aspect of the otherness and the holiness of God that you get in worship that's really important. Another thing that came to my mind is uh, I've heard this question put a number of ways, and sometimes it's, well, if just two and three of us can get together, you know, couldn't that be just church, you know? like, And that's where I would point probably to what Paul says in the New Testament where he calls the church a body. And so you have different parts of a body that are indispensable to one another. And God, uh, his church, uh, this, this body of Christ, is so ordered in such a way that, that we need one another. And the different parts of the body, that there's, there's actual governance in the church. There's things like uh, people, you know, that the church has brought and recognized the gifts of the Spirit to, to help lead deacons, priests, pastors, whatever, um, and so that you actually have people who have been trained and authorized uh, and recognize that it's not just Joe Blow who you know takes up the Bible and starts twisting right. what it says. Right. Yeah. Um, you would want to have the recognition of other people within the church say, yes, God has called these people to proclaim his word and uh, to help apply it to our lives. So yeah. I, I think recognizing that you know, just you and your buddies on it is great, and that you're part of the church. But a worship service needs to be, I think, the whole representation of the body being present. Right. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. We could probably focus on that, but we'll move on to the next question. How do we talk to someone who truly believes the prosperity gospel, prosperity preachers, and the mega churches are speaking the truth? That is a really good question, too. Um, some of y'all may not be aware of what the prosperity gospel is. Um, so I will try to give a quick synopsis. But the basic idea of the prosperity gospel is God wants you to be rich, healthy, and trouble-free. And that if you're a good enough Christian um, and you pray the right way, then you will have nothing but blessing and financial success and reward in your life. Um, so I would you... Yeah. Concur with that, um, and I would say there are a number of problems with that. Um, the first is that it's not scriptural. Um, Christians believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and that the Bible contains the whole counsel of God. And it is quite clear um, in the Bible that people who are profoundly Christian go through suffering, go through all kinds of things. They can experience joy in the midst of it, but it certainly doesn't promise um, that you're going to get rich, um, that you can pray for a Mercedes and a red bow in your driveway, and if you pray rightly, it's going to show up the next morning. Um, But you'll hear that from some prosperity gospel preachers. So I think the way that you talk to a friend is to be kind, to listen compassionately to them, and then say, you know, I would love get your thoughts on some of these passages from scripture and then share some of those and just see what they say. So what, what would you say to that? Everything you said, that's so good. No, I think that um, basically, you know, the fundamental disposition whenever somebody is um, caught up in something like that is, is compassion. You, you want to recognize that that fundamentally they're being deceived. Like, this is something that we believe um, the Bible teaches is a lie and Bible talks all over the place about false prophets, false teachers, uh, which you know you think are real because that's how they gain the gathering. But so it's a dangerous lie, actually. So, but you, when dealing with people, you have to be kind, compassionate, 
and as you said, you, you go to the scriptures and you look at it together as a friend and say, um, "Help! Let's let's look at what God actually says." Because the American, I think, so much of this is American Christianity in particular that has conflated with Christianity, which is just not the same. The American dream of having everything and wanting it all. That you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, it may mean suffering for His name. Yeah. And um, that often comes. Yeah, and all you have to do is look at Jesus, um, look at Paul. Um, these are not people who live in mansions and died leaving huge trust funds to all of their family members. Um, yeah, that's not the way it works. That's a good question. What else you got, Colton? So, mine are two questions here. Um, the church is for hurt me deeply in the past. How do I balance being obedient to God and engaging the church and healing from that hurt? And then the second piece to that is if that's been a friend's experience with the church, um, how do I speak to them about it? Yeah, that is a great question and that is a very real thing. I have experienced that. People in my family have experienced that. And I think that the the most important thing in that is to acknowledge, especially if it's your friend or if it's yourself, to acknowledge that the hurt is real, that the pain is real, that people are sinful, and sometimes people choose proactively to do things, even in the church, that are hurtful. And that, unfortunately, is because we are all sinners. Some of us covered up better than the rest of us, but we are we are all sinners, and we are only saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. But I would also say the corollary to acknowledging that the hurt is real is to not reject the truth of the gospel and to not reject every church because one church or some people in one church did things that were hurtful. And one of the things you'll notice when you read Jesus' teaching is that one of his primary topics is forgiveness. And he talks about radical forgiveness. When people have done horrible and unspeakable things, that still radical forgiveness is called for. We saw a beautiful example of that here in Charleston with the Mother Emanuel uh, survivors from that horrific shooting where they chose proactively to forgive. There was a great quotation that I love that's usually attributed to Nelson Mandela, and he says, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping it kills your enemy. And the only person that is killing is yourself. So that's a long way of saying acknowledge the pain, acknowledge the sin that happened, um, seek to forgive, and try to have an open heart and mind to where the Holy Spirit might lead you to be in best in church members. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, we're here in colors, and I just, it, whoever wrote that, I'm, I'm terribly sorry for that. And I think recognizing that, um, you know, the, the church isn't perfect, and you don't, but it does not excuse however you've been burned. And there, there's been terrible things done yeah. in the name of Jesus by leaders in the church. That All of that has come up uh, in the news of late, but throughout history, there have yeah. been terrible things. And um, the thing that I would, uh, there's a scripture that came to mind that, okay, as you said, we, 
you acknowledge the pain, you, you give voice to that, you don't belittle that, you don't deny it, um, you apologize for it. But at the same time, you look at what Jesus uh, says and, and what he's done. In marriage, he talks about marriage being an analogy between Jesus' love for the church. The church is actually his bride. He says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish, so that she might be holy. And I think what I love about that is Jesus doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, that the church is, in fact, a work in progress, uh, but Jesus has not given up on her. And that's my hope often when I hear, you know, Robbie Zacharias, all these people in the church who have done great things and then horrendous unspeakable things as well. So, great question. Great question. I would also say, if that's something that you're struggling with and you would feel comfortable talking to Justin or me, we would be so honored to have that conversation with you. What's the difference between the Anglican Church and the Catholic Church? And then what's the difference between the Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church? Okay, well, uh, if you would like to get a graduate degree in theology, we could cover that in its fullness. Um, I'm going to try to give you a really short answer. So, um, when the Christian Church was first formed by Jesus' disciples after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, um, it was formed in the Middle East, but it quickly spread out all over the place. Um, and there were different branches. There was the Coptic Church in Egypt, which is really ancient. Um, there's the church that became headquartered in Rome. You know, today is the Roman Catholic Church. But the church also included India, Russia, all of that eastern area that was originally with the Catholic Church, and that split off and became the Orthodox Church. In England, there were Christians that came to England through Roman soldiers in the um, first century, and so the English church kind of grew on its own there. Um, so there are all of these different branches that are all sort of growing simultaneously. I would say one of the major differences between the Catholic Church and the Anglican Communion, which is the overall umbrella of the Anglican Church, is that the Catholic Church believes that the Pope um, speaks uh, with magisterial authority, that he is the ultimate interpreter of scripture. Um, there's a little bit of a different view about the role of the Virgin Mary. Um, there's a little bit of a different view about the nature of some of the sacraments. And there's also a little bit of a different view about um, salvation by faith um, alone. But it also depends on who you're talking to. There are some Catholics and some Anglicans that probably believe essentially the same thing. The um, Anglican Church um, doesn't believe in the magisterium. There's not one bishop that interprets the scripture for all of the church. Um, one of the things we do have in common is what's called the apostolic succession, which means that Justin and I, when we were ordained by the bishops that ordained us, you can trace back who ordained those bishops by laying hands on their head, and you can trace all the way back to Jesus. So that is a, a mark of the tradition and authority of the church that the Anglican and Catholic Church have in common. 
So the difference between the Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church is a little bit more complicated. Um, the Episcopal Church um, is, I guess, the, the easiest explanation, the five-minute elevator conversation, is that the traditionally, um, when you're ordained to the priesthood in the Episcopal or the Anglican Church, traditionally, uh, one of the vows you make is, do you believe the scriptures to be the inspired word of God, and do you believe that they contain all things necessary for salvation? And do you agree to defend and protect the faith um, and doctrine that were, as this church has received them, which is historic Christianity? Um, in the Anglican Church, that is still held to. In the Episcopal Church, there's a new element that I would say has been added, which where experience is sometimes deemed to trump what the scriptures say. That um, the Anglican Church would say we are under the scriptures. The Episcopal Church would say we have the right to look at the scriptures and decide what applies. That's a gross oversimplification. Would you like to add anything to that? I'll try to condense it into two sentences, I think. Uh, the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church are different. Anglican Church is Protestant. Uh, it was a result of the Protestant Reformation. And the, the fundamental issue is where does the authority lie? Does the authority lie in the church? Did the church create the Bible? Or did God give us the Bible and therefore the church is in submission to it? That's the difference between Protestant and Catholic. You said it so well. Uh, Episcopal just means bishop. So, like, the Anglican Church was the Episcopal Church. I mean, those are, those are almost synonymous, except for a recent historical movement. Uh, but it just means that we are a Protestant church who happens to be governed by bishops uh, in an analogous way to the Catholic Church, though we don't believe that, you know, that there's an archbishop who's over everybody in the way the Pope is. But, um, yeah. But I would say there there are people who are deep believers and followers of Jesus and all of those yep. traditions. Yep. Uh, definitely, if you're interested in that, I we have resources. We'd love to talk to more about that. Yes. <laughs> but it's we'll send you everybody else school. fell asleep in those five minutes. I think. What else you got, Colin? How do we handle different denominations? Some people are very judgmental of different denominations and claim only the right ones will go to heaven. That is a good question also. Um, I would say that the best response to that is, um, and some people would say, well, this is not helpful, but I think it's helpful, so you have to bear with me. Um, as the old saying, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. In all things, charity. And I think the idea of Christians judging other Christians um, is something that is um, anathema to the New Testament. Jesus talks about judge not, be not judged. The flip side of that is if people are in serious error about what the Christian faith is, then that becomes a dividing line. Um, the problem with that is that there's not always an agreement about what the essentials are. Um, however, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed for millennia have defined what the essentials of the Christian faith are. So I would say any church that fully subscribes to the fullness of what both of those mean um, is on the right track in some way. How would you, how would you 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't really, there's nothing I would add to that. I mean, it's, uh, basically, we're told not to, to judge other Christians, that we are one in Christ. And so, on the, uh, I love that quote, in essentials, unity, uh, in non-essentials, liberty, and in uh, everything, charity. We all need to hear that, I think. Yes. Um, and, and we need to pray for people. Yeah, and I, I think we need to actually learn more about one another's actual traditions. I think it's a great thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember, you know, when I was a child, my next door neighbor was um, from a family who was very Baptist. And uh, when he would spend the night at my house, he was not allowed to go to church and with us. And he had to go home. And so, you know, I was a naive little six-year-old, and so I asked him, why you come to church with me. And he said, well, my parents say that in your church you worship idols. And I was like, wow. We were doing that and I missed it. Um, but, you know, that's the, that's the kind of thing that is just really uncomfortable. And, um, you know, I've worked through that with good friends still. Um, yeah, you'll be amazed. I mean, I, there's been, this is when in college, I remember someone who was Catholic, and I was Baptist at the time, and um, just making blanket pronouncements about whether somebody's a Christian or not should generally be avoided. Yes, uh, it was really it, it's it's really sad. People love Jesus and um, affirm the essentials of the Christian faith across many different denominations. So, these are great questions, John. Yeah. Thank you. Any more? If God has a plan for us and for others, why do we pray for ourselves and for others if our prayers do not follow God's plan? Okay. Okay, that's just a really easy question. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is also a really terrific question that I would um, commend to you if you're really interested in that. There's an excellent chapter in Lewis's Mere Christianity that talks about that. Um, that would do it far better than I'm going to be able to do it in one minute. Um, but what, what I would try to say to that quickly is that one of the things to remember is that we are in time and God is outside of time. We are, it's like, do you know what flat Stanley is? Did y'all have flat Stanley in kindergarten where you cut out the little paper doll and then you take pictures on your vacation at Niagara Falls with flat Stanley? Um, flat Stanley looks like a person sort of. Um, but he does not experience reality in the same way that you do. Okay? So he is only in two dimensions. You're in much more than that. God is in infinitely more dimensions than we are. God gives us free will. He has a plan for our lives. God can watch that plan unfolding. While we, while we have choice, God is knowing what's going to happen. It's this whole counterpoint of free will and predestination that are both part of the Christian faith. And this is the kind of thing that tells me Christianity has got to be true because no one would make up something where you had free will and predestination linked together like that. But I think that the easiest way, I think, to understand it is that God is outside of time, that our prayers are important in accomplishing what God's will is um, but at the same time, we have freedom within that. You want to yeah. jump in? On I, that? I might take the question in a different way. Uh, just please. One, why pray? And um, 
I think we may not know God's will for our lives. And I've known a lot of folks who get paralyzed with that. And I don't know, okay, we need to pray according to his will. Well, his the scriptures tell us what the will of God is and, and doesn't lay out, okay, who do I marry? What job do I take? You know, what all these different things that we don't know. But Jesus wonderfully tells us that God is our Father. And my little children, you know, they'll ask me anything. And sometimes the answer is, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes it's no, and sometimes it's not yet. And that's what the, basically God, who is, you know, as you said, another dimension. Um, that, that's why sometimes when we pray for things and, and it doesn't happen, it's not because He doesn't love us. Um, but we ought to try. It says pray according to what He what He wants, according to His will for our lives. But um, praying is. I, I love the analogy of just like a little child reaching out, crying to his father. Uh, there's so much more spontaneity. There's so much more. Um, so much more that will be said in a prayer like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what the heart God's after. I think. Yeah. And that's one reason the book of Psalms is a great place to look at for prayers because David just lays it all out there the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, it's all right out there. And we know the scripture tells us he's a man after God's own heart, even though he was a sinner and failed in many ways. But his prayers are just very honest with God all the time. We have one time for one more, I think. How do you recommend teaching a church? What's more important when choosing the worship and preaching or connecting with the congregation? <laughs> That's a really great question um, that there's not a good answer to. Um, but I would say I would say that the best the best answer, even though it is kind of a trap, the best answer is that no matter how great the connections are, if the worship and preaching is off, if the gospel is not being preached or heresy is being preached, no matter how much you may love the people that are there, that's not a good place to be. And um, I would pray if you are um, in that situation where you feel you have to make a choice between the two, I would go for where the worship and the teaching are Christ-centered and biblical, and then pray that God would open doors for deep relationship with you. And there are, there are times in my own life when I was younger that I had to make exactly that choice and invariably God led me to wonderful relationships and places that I initially thought were really cold and not very well. Yeah, I think the priority has to be um, just because of the spectrum of what preaching could be. I mean, it could be the prosperity gospel, which you said, don't don't go there. Um, but if it is a church that is holding fast to the truth of the Bible and it's teaching that, that's the central place, and say the pastor's just maybe not that dynamic, but what he's saying is good. Um, that, that's okay. I, I would answer this in many ways. You can be surprised by that kind of preaching over the long haul, right. yeah. because it's way more about relationship. And you can, if the, the folks at a place that um, you know have great preaching, but the people are, don't seem your age or something like that, you'll be surprised at what God can do in community. Um, and so... I would say one thing is don't just go on a Sunday and judge it by one Sunday. Try to give it at least a few times. Um, don't 
underestimate what God can do. If it's faithful, solid, scriptural teaching, um, or if it's and, and a um, but just not as dynamic, I guess, but a, a good set of folks, like give it a shot. Don't underestimate what God can do either in, um, in, in preaching or in yeah, and I would say don't limit God about what he might do in terms of relationships. Yeah. Because one of the things that we, we are stuck, uh, I think, so often in what I call the American Sunday School model of relationships in the church, that you think the, the young marrieds are over here, the these people are over here, those people are over there. When you look at the New Testament, there are relationships, deep relationships, and deep fellowship across ages, across gender, across all of that. And so God might surprise you um, with cultivating a wonderful relationship with somebody who's not your age, um, who is very different. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen and working with college students a lot, it's just people can get very picky, like overly picky. It's like finding the ideal spouse. You're like, there's a perfect person out there. There's not a perfect church. There's not a perfect spouse. Uh, it's better to pick a good one. Uh, maybe even a mediocre one, as long as it's faithful and stick to and it. And invest. And invest. Yeah. Um, thank you all so much for coming. This has been my favorite one so far. <laughs> this has been really, and I was surprised. I didn't think that it would be. Um, you're going away. For I am. Three weeks. I'm going on vacation. I will miss you all so much, but we have a, a guest to take my place for next time. Um, Jeff Miller, many of y'all know from St. Phillips. It will be awesome, but I will look forward to being back with you with one after that. Excited for that, Jeff. It's, it's going to be great. We're going to talk about something right up this alley, which is wh- what really is the Bible? I have kind of alluded to that. And does it really have anything for us today? So it'll be really fun to have Jeff here. We'd love to have you back. Again, um, if you want to stay connected, please do uh, send us an email. If you have a topic, I mean, we've got plenty of things we can talk about, but shoot me an email or something like that. Would, yeah, we'd that love to hear sure.